Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Dalbo Rohaj and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by my friends. Giselle Donnelly, I'm also a senior fellow at AEI and... Julia Zoja with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown and George Washington Universities. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace and security that have erupted along the line running from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. Our special guest today is Elina Beketova, a Democracy Fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis in Washington, D.C., and a Ukrainian journalist, television anchor, TV host. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Alina, it's it's great to have you finally on the on the show. You have uh, been writing very eloquently uh, about the life on the occupied territories in in Ukraine, mm-hmm. and your most recent uh, piece on on SIPA's website deals with the challenge of, uh, of 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 Crimea and the reintegration of Crimea, if you will, following a an expected Ukrainian victory that we are all hoping for. Uh, could you perhaps start by giving us a little bit of background uh, into you know, your personal history with this part of Ukraine, your interest in that region, and also what the sort of main substantive challenges for, for Ukraine are mm-hmm. if, Ukraine, if, if Crimea is to be liberated? Uh, well, thank you so much for having me today. And definitely, uh, thank you so much for your interest in this topic. Uh, just a few words about me. I'm a democracy fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis, and I'm from originally from Crimea. Uh, then I lived in Kharkiv, which is in the east of Ukraine, and in Kiev for many, many years. So being from Crimea, uh, well, I left the peninsula many years ago before the annexation of Crimea, but the whole part with the annexing of this territory, occupying it by Russian forces, and then with the, all the talks that we need to regain control, you know, like it's in my head every day. I'm thinking about it, how we will be uh, regaining control over this territory, what challenges we will be going through. So uh, I have decided to write uh, about it uh, recently. So it's basically the process that we will be going through when we regain control uh, over the peninsula, because we understand that uh, this place has been occupied, well, right now for nine years, we don't know when the liberation will happen, but we understand that it's for years people uh, have been under occupation. It means that uh, like there are occupying authorities and administrations that work there. Uh, so it raises a lot of questions starting from uh, what are we going to do with the uh, like people who stayed there and worked for these occupation administrations. Uh, What are we going to do with just simple civilians who didn't work for occupation administrations, but ran some businesses there and they remained on this territory? And with the range of questions, um, how will Ukraine cope with a lot of difficulties because we will definitely have them. Uh, We have to think about it right now because we will need a lot of um, like reserve personnel for the peninsula. So right now it's the number of 30,000 public servants that we will need to have for peninsula. And there are special uh, programs for them already in Ukraine. Uh, those people who want to um, come and work in the restored uh, Ukraine state administrations, uh, they can learn and um, and they can get a lot of new knowledge for them. So this is uh, like the uh, last information, and I'm really curious about all the processes that's, that will take place there. 
I mean, it strikes me that, that the central challenge really has to do with, uh, with 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 the length of 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 the occupation. I mean, nine years is a is a long time, and over that period, we've seen uh, changes to the ethnic composition of the peninsula. So, so what do you think will happen in that respect? I mean, there have been you know, people who've been expelled or, or sort of relocated or, or or left on their own, and there have been others who moved in and from from mainland Russia might have bought houses, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. How, how 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 do you see this playing out if Crimea is to be either liberated or or sort of ceded by by Russia in some post-war settlement? Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for this question. Uh, well, it's actually very simple because right now there is a discussion. Well, uh, Ukrainian authorities and human rights defenders say that uh, those people who uh, came uh, to the peninsula illegally after the annexation, they will have to leave the territory of the peninsula. Those people, there are like a lot of issues with people who got married and have kids, for instance. Uh, they got married with Crimean resident, and then what's the situation with them? Um, there are situations when uh, Crimean Tatars who were deported and lived many years in Russia then came back and were in the process of obtaining Ukrainian passports before the annexation, and they didn't get these passports, but they were in this process. So what are we going to do with them? And uh, well, there are like a lot of uh, discussions right now, but in the majority of cases, those who um, like entered the peninsula illegally, they will have to leave the territory. Because right now we have three, uh, according to Ukrainian law, we have three checkpoints uh, where it is possible to go to the peninsula through Kherson Oblast. And unfortunately, those people who uh, came after annexation of Crimea, they went through the Kerch Bridge, which is the other side of the peninsula. That is why it's considered to be the illegal enter to the peninsula. So uh, uh, the the question is, maybe there will be some uh, like individual cases, they will be discussed. And uh, I'm sure, you know, Ukraine is very different from Russia because we are a country that follows the rule of law. So that is why if there will be some uh, cases where it is necessary to to go through the process of uh, investigation and uh, understanding the situation, I'm sure Ukraine will, will be following the law. So uh, that's it. You and I talked once some sometime recently yeah. um uh, over coffee in in Washington about this and you told me that you and and generally it's a phenomenon that people um that are from Crimea that are in free Ukraine not in occupied territories uh are very reluctant to talk about it and for the majority of people now interested in Ukraine um, across the West in the United States and um, across um, Europe as well, we just don't know much about what mm-hmm. these people think, why they don't want to talk about um, Crimea, why they don't want to be outspoken about whether they think Crimea should be liberated and reintegrated or not. And I remember that you said you were a bit reluctant to talk about it um, as well. So what made you decide um, now to talk about it? And can you tell us a little bit more about 
why we know so little and why so many people are reluctant. The one thing that we know kind of since 2014 has been very much about the discrimination of the Crimean Tatars. And they've done, I've worked with them on, on several occasions and they're doing a fantastic job. Um, uh, Taminata Shiva, Maria Tomak and others um, of uh, highlighting um, how Tatars are being discriminated, what the history is of Crimea in relationship to Tatars. But nobody is aware of the fact that there are tens, I think, I don't know if there's numbers, tens of thousands, if not more, of Ukrainian, ethnic Ukrainians that have left before or just around the moment of the annexation and mm -hmm. are um, sort of displaced um, because of that too. So can you help us make sense of that and also what made you decide to talk about it more? Uh, well, thank you for this question, Yulia. I think that uh, the, uh, well, after the annexation, uh, all the people uh, who were or who are from Crimea just tried to settle down their lives more or less. Well, it, it is not related to me because I uh, I left the peninsula before the annexation. So it was in 2006 when I went to Kharkiv, but still I have ties and connections with the peninsula. So I think that the whole question is that when the annexation happened, it was always this thought that, you know, right now the situation will change because the whole international community will see what is going on right now on the peninsula and there will be this rule of law and there will be this uh, fair uh, outcome of the situation that this territory will uh, become well that we will regain control over this territory and we had a lot of talks through like in the uh, political circles that the regaining control over Crimea will be with diplomatic means you know like the, it will be like a diplomatic way uh, to regain control over Crimea. After the 21st of February and when Russia started its full-scale invasion, for all the people and Crimeans especially, we understood that, you know, it's not going to stop if we don't stop it. So, uh, like, uh, you know, Putin needed nine years to go and invade the rest of the territory, like to, to go with a full-scale invasion on different front uh, of, of Ukraine. So that is why I think that for a lot of people right now is the question that we kind of hoped all these nine years that there will be like this diplomatic mean that Ukraine, that Ukraine will regain control over its territory with its diplomatic mean, with the, like, I don't know, politicians uh, getting together, uh, doing something, and then uh, we will have this territory. But after 21st of February, I think it was very obvious that it's not going to happen. And right now you see that, uh, well, a lot of people started saying that, you know, it's it's going to be another way. It's, it's going to be a military way to regain control over the peninsula. That is why a lot of people started talking Talking about it, and uh, that is why it's, it's it's very important to raise a lot of questions and to show the discussions we have right now in the Ukrainian even community, because in such a way it will be understandable that we are actually doing something because we have this strategy of the uh, occupation and uh, liberation of Crimea. Uh, so it's um, it was adopted in March 2021, um, and in April 2023 it was this plan was updated. So it means that for many, many years, we didn't have this strategy. And only in 20, 2021, we had it. So I think that it's all the process that at first we hoped that it could be some other way to regain control. And right now, everyone understands that it's just uh, it's it's the insane 
way that we are just losing our territory and we are just observing as in a game what territory we will lose tomorrow like this and no one want to do it anymore i think it's like this so there's a practical dimension to 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 this reintegration of of crimea and other occupied territories which has to do with the fact that uh initially when it was fully part of ukraine you obviously had a public administration in place and you mentioned in your in your CPA piece uh, that in Crimea you had roughly thirty thousand people working for the government, either as civil servants, policemen, in emergency services, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So some of those people have left since twenty fourteen. Some of them have stayed on, might have been sort of working for 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 the Russian occupiers. Uh, but but in any event, both in Crimea and in other territories that are to be liberated, there will be this immediate challenge of how you administer these 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 regions as you know normal parts of, of Ukraine. Do you you know rely on the people who are already there? Do you sort of try to reintegrate them back into the Ukrainian public administration? Obviously you have to vet them, you have to look at the you know what they were doing during the occupation. Or you can bring in people from 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 from, from the rest of Ukraine to sort of step in. Uh, so what's the Ukrainian government sort of thinking, planning uh, going ahead in 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 this sort of very sort of pedestrian, uh, very very sort of practical area. That's a very great question, and I, I need to say that right now there is a discussion going on because we have a uh, article, uh, well, in the Criminal Code of Ukraine, and uh, um, well, uh, it's it says that basically, um, you know, like top officials and war criminals will be jailed, and uh, they will be like terms for people who cooperated with the uh, occupying uh, forces. But right now there is. Um, not very clear about what is the measure of this uh, cooperation, uh, because, like, for instance, if the law says that voluntarily holding a position in the occupation authorities or, um, like, transferring material resources to illegal armed or paramilitary groups in the occupied territories, that it will be punishable by fines, imprisonment, um, and th there is a question. So if a person uh, transferred material resources to illegal armed or paramilitary groups, uh, did he do or she do it uh, voluntarily or on purpose? So was there any force uh, obtained to him so that he he or she did it? So there are like a lot of questions uh, and uh, like related especially to like businessmen or uh, even teachers because if they um, you know spread the propaganda there or if they helped uh, the uh, like to hold this uh, uh, very like uh, conversations about important, which is absolutely, uh, you know, like uh, uh, about Russian history and everything. So it means that they spread the propaganda among children. So there are like a lot of tricky questions. And right now, uh, from what I'm seeing and how the uh, well, authorities say, they say that middle and lower ranking civil servants whose actions had serious consequences, they will be held accountable and they will be prosecuted, while those whose actions didn't have serious consequences will no longer be able to work in the public service, but they won't be prosecuted. So see, there is like a very uh, like minimal measure, right? So it's, it's very tricky to understand 
but I think that there will be uh, assessment. Um, well, after we regain control, there will be assessment, and I'm sure that Ukraine uh, follows the law and uh, the rule of law, that it will be fair. You know, those who did something bad, who used propaganda, who, um, well, helped uh, the occupying forces or just tortured people, you know, I think that those people will be prosecuted. Those people who had to just execute some of the tasks but they were like brilliant teachers before 2014 and annexation. So they were uh, teachers uh, during their occupation and annexation. So probably if they are good teachers and after retraining, they can be teachers uh, after we regain control. So it's a lot of different, it's a lot of different dimensions and we can take any profession, any public servant, and we can have probably multiple cases there. And uh, they, but I'm sure we, we have a lot of these discussions right now, and we will have this plan because we already see that it's there. You know, the, the, historically speaking, these have been incredibly diff uh, difficult and delicate moments and processes for you know reconstructing a society that's broken. I think, especially uh, recently, about the debathification program in Iraq. Or, or even uh, similar programs in Afghanistan. There's an immense opportunity for score settling and personal vendettas to be carried out. Sometimes it, it has been useful for sort of international third parties to play an advisory role uh, to, you know, bring some at least semblance of, um, you know, detachment from local politics and local, you know, to try to sniff out where somebody's trying to settle the score or has a resentment. Is there much of that conversation um, when you talk about uh, uh, social reconstruction uh, in this way? Or is it still kind of too early to for that kind of a dialogue well, to happen? Yeah, well, thank you so much for this question. I'm sure there are these conversations, but I don't know the outcomes so far because I haven't seen any news that we will be, uh, you know, like involving some other people from uh, other countries. But I'm sure this experience and this knowledge may be very useful. So uh, I'm, well, I'm keen to read something about that or if you can drop me a link or anything, it will be super interesting because I think that- It's, it's mostly very unhappy stories about how people screw it up, but uh, but, you, but a, good, a good way to learn from the mistakes that others make. Well, definitely. And I think that there is just this, uh, you know, right now we are trying to measure because there is, there should be like this uh, um, measurement of where is this red line? Because people, the society, they want to uh, have justice and they want to people, those who collaborated and who intimidated or who tortured other people or even killed so that they were persecuted. But we understand that there are a lot of good cases. Even in uh, Crimea, there is a case of a teacher who, regardless of the occupation, didn't want to, uh, you know, like uh, to educate kids with uh, Russian history and with the Russian perception of this uh, history. So he would be uh, opposing the regime. That is why he was always fired. He has fines and uh, he is persecuted, you know. So there are good cases when people tried to oppose the Russian occupying authorities as they could. And uh, it's just, uh, we have very limited access to the peninsula. And, uh, you know, the peninsula, I always uh, try to explain, it's like a black box. It, it's very good when we have some information going out of there 
but in the majority of cases, we don't know what is going on there unless uh, we have some connections with the with Crimea and we can talk to someone. But in you know, sometimes it's just uh, like I do not have teachers uh, like as friends, so that is why I can't speak with them and ask them. Like some of the people who are in small business, I can talk to them and just uh, you know, kind of ask them what is their mm. perception. But it's so right now. It's it's interesting how in the twenty first century, you know, this connection um, happens through people. So when we can actually get some information is from the people who are there. And the same with us, because they are, uh, well, you know that Russian propaganda works there and it's very hard for them to uh, know any other information except of the propaganda. A lot of uh, websites, Ukrainian websites are blocked there. So you can't watch anything uh, from Ukraine. So you have to have like this VPN uh, to set it up, to install it, but then you have to be very careful because you never know. Maybe this will be perceived as spying, you know, and you will be uh, you will be detained, and then there will be a fabricated case that you spied for someone, you know. So there is uh, like it's um, it's it's a very tricky question, but I'm sure uh, other uh, uh, you know experiences from other countries can be helpful, and we definitely need to learn a lot of experiences so that we have our own story. Before we move on to more recently occupied um, territories, because I, I'm very curious about um, how that compares and, and what you're tracking over there. Though, the one thing that I also want to ask you, staying on with Crimea and perhaps the occupied part of the Donbass, but particularly Crimea, is essentially in a nutshell what's the worst that has been happening under russian occupation and the reason why i'm asking is that again since 2014 um as you know that um ukraine particularly under zelensky but also before tried very hard to not have ukraine uh, to not have crimea forgotten but because of this black box that you're describing um, very little information trickled into the West um, and made headlines in terms of how bad occupation was, what were the things that people suffered most from um, um, if they decided to stay under Russian-occupied territories, particularly in Ukraine. Um, I followed this closer than others, but still I don't know much. So I know um, about reports um, about uh, heavy propag military propaganda with um, kids in school, um, and uh, sort of indoctrination at the Orwellian level. Um, I know about um, uh, kidnappings and torture and disappearance, particularly of Crimean Tatars, particularly when they are um, they were expressing political opinions or manifesting some kind of an opposition um, towards the occupying regime. Um, but but these are just bits and pieces. And you've been tracking this again through personal contacts and writing about this as a journalist um, since 2014. So I know it's hard to kind of summarize but for our audience that, again, hasn't been following this too, um, not as closely over the last so many years, what are the things that um, in, in your mind state as the most, um, the worst, really, in terms of human rights violations and how people have suffered most under occupation? 
Well, thank you so much for this question. I, I will be probably very brief in this very complex uh, question, uh, answering that it's basically losing uh, your identity, your Ukrainian identity, because if you stay there on this territory, so we, we have to kind of like distinguish different parts, because if we are talking about territories which have been occupied for uh, or annexed for nine years, it's one situation and newly occupied. It's slightly different right now, and I will explain why. But if we talk about these uh, uh, territories that have been occupied for nine years, so it's you cannot be a person who you used to be before. So if you are a Ukrainian Crimean Tatar, you cannot uh, be it because everything is suppressed there. So uh, you are offered to be uh, to follow a particular model. So if we uh, talk about the uh, like uh, this conscription process, passportization, uh, Russian schedule at schools, all this young uh, army, cadet classes. Everything is, uh, you know, it's imposed through the uh, Russian eyes and through the Russian history and, uh, um, you know, uh, outlook and identity. So you cannot be actually, so you cannot preserve your Ukrainian identity if you stayed at these territories. So this is the uh, the most horrible thing that I think uh, is uh, happening there. So uh, if you want to stay Ukrainian or and uh, like uh, if you want to preserve your identity, you had to actually flee this territory because on that territory it's not possible because you would be opposing this Russian uh, propaganda machine or uh, you would be opposing this uh, uh, occupation and eventually you will be detained and you will be prosecuted for that. So it's it's very simple. You cannot be yourself there. So and uh, right now what we are observing on the um, newly occupied, temporarily te uh, temporarily occupied territories, it's basically the scenario of Crimea, but uh, it happens more faster. So uh, they already chucked it and tried it in Crimea. And they are doing it in newly occupied territories. So that's the uh, like that is why I'm always saying that we need to liberate that territories as fast as we can, and uh, we all uh, hope for the counteroffensive. Because, for instance, this like cadet classes that first began in Crimea and Donbass, they started appearing in uh, other occupied territories after the full-scale invasion, like in Kherson Oblast. Uh, for instance, the Russian-appointed government uh, of the occupied area of Kherson Oblast, uh, Saldo, he announced back in February of this year that his administration planned to set up two cadet units for children in occupied Skadovsk. So, and named after Alexander Suvorov, who is the 18th century Russian general. Then there are like Cossack classes with proper patriotic education, you know, as they call it, for children uh, of different ages. Then they have this Yun Armia, um, which was at first, uh, it's a Moscow-based military patriotic movement, uh, which uh, basically prepares kids to serve in the Russian armed forces, and it's sanctioned by the European Union. So uh, at first it was operating in Crimea before the full-scale invasion, and now it has branches in the occupied territories of Zaporizhia and Kherson Oblast. But as the occupying forces know how it works, they work faster in the newly occupied territories. And the last news that like I checked it even today, that they uh, wanna, uh, like Russia wanna hold elections, uh, elections, so-called elections in the occupied territories of Ukraine uh, on uh, the 10th of September. So this is, uh, 
the same scenario that we saw in Crimea. So this is a Crimean technology. So they announced the holding of so-called elections on the temporarily occupied territories because they want to legalize uh, the occupation of these territories, saying that, you know, like we hold, we held elections there. That's uh, legally appointed administrations. But in reality, it is not because this territory was uh, occupied and they like called the elections, the so-called elections there without any rule of law. So this is what is happening. Uh, and that is why, and they are trying to integrate, to integrate their territories into their, uh, you know, uh, into their territory. So this is what is going on. Uh, at first they suppress and then they work very fast there. And then they try to integrate that territories into their, um, you know, like economic, political system and everything else. Before we ring off, we should talk a bit about the fate of Ukrainian children who have been abducted and other, which you've written about both quite knowledgeably and quite movingly. Maybe you could just give us a a, a summary of what the situation uh, is at the moment um, and uh, what the discussion is about how to reverse or mm -hmm. you know if there is likely to be anything that can be done to repatriate uh, these young kids who have been taken away from their families, if their families sur even survive that, uh, taken through Russia in many cases uh, and go through that indoctrination and, uh, you know, sort of, I don't even know what to call the process, but the uh, process of becoming little Russians, I guess. Bring us up to date. Uh, I think many of our audience have heard a little bit about that, but are not that knowledgeable. Well, thank you so much. Actually, uh, I'm not like, I, uh, I've seen a lot of reports on this particular topic, but I haven't taken it yet because I know that uh, other uh, people and experts write about it a lot. So basically it's, uh, it's a very simple process when uh, kids uh, from the occupied territories, they are abducted on the territory of Russia. And Russia uses this technology that they are saying, you know, like they are trying to impose their point of view that they don't do anything bad, that they are trying to save those people, those kids who are under the shelling, and they use the propaganda machine saying that it's allegedly the armed forces of Ukraine shell at you. Uh, and that is why we are uh, like, uh, we are taking you to other territories. And there, on the territory of Russia, we don't know what happens with those kids, only uh, with the information that when kids uh, like get a chance to um, to reach out uh, Ukrainian authorities, and then the Ukrainian authorities work. It's it's a very complex system, and I'm sure there are a lot of people who are involved there. They try to get these people, get these children back. So, uh, but the whole system, like I, I read and translated one of the uh, stories of the teenager who was abducted to Russia, and then um, like he was brainwashed there, they, like his, uh, his whatever uh, new parents would say him that uh, Ukraine uh, shells uh, on them, that uh, it's Nazis, blah, 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 you know, like it's all the narratives that they always use. But he was lucky enough because he reached out to the Ukrainian authorities and to the journalists. And actually, that was a very uh, um, like successful combination for, for him because he could actually get out. This is how we learn 
sharing the information of what is happening there in Russia. Because, I mean, we, we can definitely read these uh, reports that are in uh, or news in the open uh, sources, but uh, we understand that it's the, the whole process basically of abduction of children and they uh, just appear to be in some Russian families. But with the uh, flooding uh, and with the destruction of Kakhovka Dam, you know, we also see the same processes because um, kids from the uh, left bank of, which is occupied on Kherson Oblast, they were um, like, uh, they were transferred to Crimea and then they were transferred somewhere to Russia. Like I saw a couple of news, uh, meaning that there is like a system. So they use this as a system, uh, using allegedly a very, like uh, they are explaining it that they are trying to save those kids. But in reality, we understand that if kids uh, appeared on the uh, occupied or annexed territories, we don't know what will happen with them afterwards. So it should be a combination of a lot of efforts from those kids to actually return them to the Ukraine's controlled territory. And, uh, you know, if this kid is six years old or five years old, and uh, those people and parents uh, try to impose uh, their points of view, I mean, our chances are very limited that uh, um, he will then return to Ukraine, you know? So that's a, that's a tragedy of uh, our people right now. And uh, there are many, many cases. I, I saw a lot of reports uh, that were connected, uh, that were related to this topic, you know, but that's, if, if to say it very uh, simple, it's, um, you know, it's the abduction, you're quite right, yeah. Um, before we go, there's one more thing that I want to ask you about, and maybe we should also mention, you should mention, but you're too modest, that you're tracking as part of your work for SIPA 35 Telegram channels, and you can um, read the results of this tracking that Alina does on Behind the Lines um, Tracker on the SIPA webpage, where I was reading um, just a few days before the dam's destruction, how uh, how the Russians on the left side of the Dnipro River were stealing boats. Uh, isn't that mm -hmm. interesting? Um, apropos the connections that you can make and how how some of the incidents that we still don't know how to attribute, you actually can track through these telegram channels and through the chatter preparation towards that. That then then you have the aha moment and and sort of it starts making sense, but. The, the question that I want to ask you is a bit more of a difficult one. And again, I think it's important to understand because of um, the inequality in terms of means when it comes to um, the economic side, but also to hearts and minds. Um, people, um, friends, acquaintances mm -hmm. that have relatives in um, newly occupied um, areas that were also destroyed, right, different from the older occupied um, areas, for instance, Mariupol, are telling me how the Russians have been very fast at um, uh, this integration process and that now people that stayed in Mariupol, for instance, um, are getting a lot of free stuff that they've never had before. Um, they're getting, um, the, the um, Russians are importing school teachers or, um, from um, Far East Russia. They're importing um, hospital staff. Um, they're rebuilding as fast as they can. We've had the so-called pleasure of seeing Putin 
at least claiming to be Putin, um, walking around uh, Mariupol newly built um, uh, um, residential areas um, somewhat recently. And they're also getting pensions and they're getting um, salaries uh, from the Russian state. So many of them for the first time in their life for now are getting double that from Ukraine still and from Russia. While at the same time, Ukraine obviously economically with the hardship that it's going through caused by Russia and being a smaller country with less resources cannot compete. Um, so can you tell me um, a little bit, tell us a little bit more about how that looks like, um, um, Russia's efforts, and how, if it's possible at sort of the macro level, how do you evaluate this has an impact on hearts and minds? Are they from what you're hearing, and of course it's on a case-by-case -case level, but nevertheless, generally, do they manage to have an impact on on those people, you know, that went through the hard, hard, hardest hardship imaginable with the bombings, but now mm -hmm. are, are trying to be integrated by Russia, Russianized, becoming Russian? Is that, in your understanding, actually working? Well, I think it depends on uh, what the person thought before the full-scale invasion or before 2014, because we shouldn't uh, underestimate the ideological uh, principle and how what the person believed in. So, for uh, like, I I think that and with those people who I communicate, a lot of them like from Mariupol or from the occupied part of the Parisian Oblast who had to flee. They say that it's absolutely sick that at first Russia destroys their uh, their settlements, their villages, cities, and then it gives some bonuses or support, which doesn't make any sense because it's a very sick technology, and uh, only people who don't see this action and consequence uh, they can uh, basically catch up on it. But other people who understand everything, they uh, they just flee this territory. Uh, those people who stay there, in in the majority of cases, they or um, would be slightly passive in in the terms of like, or they didn't have any opportunity to flee the territory. That is why they need to survive. Or, so or they. Or they were Russian sympathizers. Or they Russian. were like they were slightly think, sympathizing or whatever. So yeah. I think that it's just uh, in my understanding, it feels like it's it's very different everywhere. And uh, if you ask me, I would say you that it's like a psychopath technology. You know, the first day he beats you, the next day he brings you a present. And you are like with injuries, with everything. I just don't want to make this example, but that's a very simple example, right? And if you stay in, in this uh, relationship, then we understand what is inside of the brain of those very, my, my apologies, poor people in terms of what they have to go through. Yeah, because it's a tragedy. It's a pain for everyone who cannot leave this territory and have to uh, kind of uh, say okay to what is happening. Shall we leave it at that then? It's a, a appropriately lugubrious uh, note on which to conclude an Eastern Front uh, podcast. Um, but I, I do think that uh, we can hope that these things can be reversed, that uh, uh, a Ukrainian victory will not only vanquish the evil enemy, 
but um, help people to recover their the fullness of their lives in time. And this is a, a, a project that ought to concern us all. I mean, it's not just a Ukrainian project, not just a European project. Uh, it, is a, it is a measure of a liberal society as a whole. I just hope that definitely it's a tragedy for all the people and, uh, you know, all the Ukrainians are traumatized in that or in other way. So those people who are in the temporarily occupied territories, they have to go through this occupation, deal with the uh, all the so-called bonuses that they are offered just to survive. And that's a big, big uh, trauma. And so not only for focusing on the battlefield, but also for these ample psychological and social consequences, we're keeping all our fingers crossed that the counteroffensive is as successful as possible, and that as much territory is being liberated sooner, as you as you were saying um, earlier, rather than later, and Slava Ukraini. Thank you, Alina Beketova, from Dalibor Rohac and Giselle Donnelly and Julia Zoza. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges that have erupted along the line running from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AI.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag Eastern Front Pod, written as one word. And don't forget to sign up for the Eastern Front's newsletter through the link included in the show notes to receive more content from the Eastern Front. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you, and goodbye.